early. Happy New Year. Thank you, Kate. Yes, it's a new year, 2021. Hopefully it's uh, got a lot more promise and uh, positivity about it rather than 2020. Yes, let's hope there's more strategy rather than being reactive, perhaps. Mm, That's right, that's right. So to kick off the year, we thought we'd uh, take a review of one of the vocational education training programs we've been a part of over the years, and that was based in Mongolia. Yeah, so Ulaanbaatar is the capital of Mongolia, which is where we were based. Um, But then we travelled out into towards the Chinese border, the Russian border, and out to the west as well. So we covered quite a lot of the country with the education program. Yeah, so we'll, we'll perhaps the reasoning behind it is, uh, is it's a new year and it was our first ever introduction to vocational education training as facilitators. So maybe that's the subconscious talking to us. I'm not sure. Perhaps. It was also the same time of year. It was. It's, it's, it's a great journey. It was, a, it was a great journey. So we left Australia at the height of summer and we had experienced consistently temperatures over 40 degrees, yeah. hadn't we, for at least a few weeks. It yeah. was extremely hot that summer. Yeah. And we lived in the desert, so you couldn't really get much more extreme. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we worked for the government up in the mid-north of South Australia, so quite um, extreme temperatures. And I remember uh, we bought all of our snow boots and all of the bits and pieces that you need to survive in, in uh, pretty harsh cold conditions of Mongolia, and we'd never seen snow. You know, Australians very rarely would be exposed to snow. And we certainly had never seen snow. We'd never seen temperatures probably below 12 degrees, really. No. And not much fun trying on snow gear in 35 degree temperatures in yeah, Adelaide here. Yeah. And it was very, very difficult to find yeah. the equipment yes, that was Yes, there wasn't much around. That's right. So we, we jettison off and we head to Beijing in China, yeah. where we situate for about five days whilst our visas are getting processed. What was, do, do you recall that experience? I do. I remember Beijing being very grey, mm-hmm. very smoggy, very big. Yes. I, I couldn't get over how huge Beijing was, and no doubt it's even bigger Yeah. again now. Um, and the difficulty in communicating with people, you know, trying to find the embassy and sorting the visa. Yeah. It, it was not easy. Even room service was a... Uh, difficulty, should I say. Sure, sure. All, all, all these challenges, that's yeah. right. But fantastic organisation yeah. in the city. Just, just amazing. I was, I was very impressed with um, the architecture and the, and the street layout and the like. But it was. It was very different to Australia. And I remember, I recall seeing um, a light drift of snow on the ground, just a dusting of snow on the ground. Um, and I remember taking a few photos just in case we never saw snow again. Yeah, in the Forbidden City. We were taking <laughs> we pictures were, of snow we in the Forbidden City. There was almost, it was almost barely visible, the snow. And that's right. Scraping a bit up into a pile. Yeah, yeah, just it to feel it, just to see what it was like. It's just fascinating for us. Yeah. So with that mindset, we, we had assumed that well, we may never see snow again, so this is a great opportunity to take a few photos with colleagues and the like. Um, in in with with uh, probably about half an inch of snow on the ground, yeah. <laughs> and little did we know. So fly into Ulaanbaatar, and it is just white. The country is absolutely white with Mountains snow as far as the eye can yeah. see. Minus yeah. forty, minus forty five degrees. So 
a huge jump in temperature wise as well. It was just such an extraordinary change from what we had come from. Yes. I remember uh, the, the first experience I remember of Mongolia is walking across the airport car park towards the uh, NGO van that was waiting for us and carrying our bags and our luggage. And I hit ice because I'd never, <laughs> I'd never experienced this. And the next minute I'm laying on my back, um, you know, with uh, bags all around me and I've, and I've slipped and fallen on the, on the tarmac. So welcome to Mongolia and welcome to the world of uh, sub-zero temperatures which was uh very very quickly we experienced minus 40 so we went from plus 40 in australia to minus 40 in mongolia uh probably within the week it was pretty severe and it was a real wake-up call to what we were entering into i think that was probably one of the most the one of the most challenging things mentally is we were there to teach people how to grow and produce food and yet it's minus 40 minus 45 (coughs) It, the ground is absolutely frozen, covered yeah. in snow, yeah. and we discover there's 90 days of the year where it's above zero and not frozen. Yeah, where, where the ground's not frozen, yeah. um, permafrost. Yeah. yeah, it's such different conditions to what we what we were familiar with. So to get our head around that was a huge mind shift. It was, it was, and so we um, we were united with our local agronomist team. And they reassured us that, don't worry, um, it'll be successful. Uh, We might only have 90 days, but we'll plan it out and we'll get it done. Mm. So we did. We worked with the agronomist team to determine some priorities of of training and some goals that we would be um, setting. And we began to develop those sessions, those training sessions. Mm. So so let's perhaps step back, go back a step and look at, what actually we were delivering and to whom and to where and how the program was laid out? Yes, yes. Well, um, we were we were called to write curriculum. We were asked to um, join this NGO to write uh, food security curriculum. That was our that was our brief, and that's really all we knew. Um, and it had to be organic, and it had to uh, enhance um, small holding food security for the ultra poor. Of the nation, and really at that point, um, probably that that encompassed the majority of yeah. Mongolia. Yeah, the the country had just experienced several years of a zud, which is um, drought in the summer, and then really really harsh winters. And so their their stock had died; they were unable to grow in the summer. The limited growing that yeah. they were so then they were really in a lot of them were in a dire situation food wise. Yeah, and so that's what we'd been told, um, and we'll get to it later, but um, there were some horrendous stories that mm. were defined to us on our departure, which we'll discuss later, about the year before. Yeah. Um, so we hadn't really comprehended just how dire yeah. the situation was for many of these households. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we sat down with our team, remember? We sat down with our team and we um, got a briefing on, on what they perceived as, as some of the priorities for the country. Um, but there was no curriculum written. There was uh, no staff really hired other than about three staff, but we needed about 35 yeah. to cover the nation. Um, there were The materials had arrived, so all of the resources were in a warehouse in readiness. Yeah. But that was about it. Yeah. And the program started in four weeks. Yeah. 
So the aim was to teach small holding. So actually there was two two arms to the program. The one that you were mm-hmm. you were basically facilitating was where you worked with small holders. So yep. you know, just general gardens. They're not talking about small farms, they were literally garden size. Yeah, quite you know, quite large general. blocks of yeah. land. Um certainly you know, able to sustain communities moving forward, yeah. but uh, yes, but they not, weren't not, farms. not farms. No, no. Um, but so the individuals had to have some land to grow on, but it didn't mm. have to be a huge amount. And they got issued things like wood and plastic to create greenhouses, so that the season could start early for them, mm-hmm. so they could get yeah. things started. Yeah. And then we had the other arm of the program, which is more about communities um, uh, um, that required additional support and one of those was the blind society so we did a community garden for the blind society so they didn't have their own land they used the community garden and the blind society was huge there were a lot of people involved in the blind so it might sound like a small organization was actually hundreds of people yeah i think there was about 400 yeah okay um involved in the program um and then we had another two sites which was the women's prison and the juvenile boys prison and we also had to develop um, a large-scale um, uh, food security demonstration, yeah, demonstration, the demonstration farm, plot. basically, because it was a large property that we had to develop. Yeah. And then there was also another component. We might talk about this as well, in that we were uh, experimenting with the crop quinoa yeah. in the northern regions of, Ulamba, of of Mongolia. So we might talk about what happened there. Yeah. Um, as we progress, um, yeah. but yeah, so so they were the key components to the to the program. Mm. Um, and really, with the support from the Mongolian staff, with their knowledge, mm-hmm. was integral as yes. well to the yes. success of the program. Very much so, because we had no idea of the weather or the seasons or the growing conditions. So they, we, we really needed them to bring that knowledge. The, the timing, the, the timing yeah. and the scheduling um, was was really um, they were pivotal in that. So they were really they were great in that. So they had they had local um, Russian education, so university standard education, which was great. Um, but from our exposure to the Russian education system, it it was kind of delivered in quite a didactic way. So very different to how we would. Um, understand adult education in Australia yeah. at least and, and in other parts of the world. So that I guess brings us to um, our introduction to being involved in training and education. So I don't think either of us had really been involved in any formal delivery or development of education until this point in time. No, no, I'd, I'd, I'd been a student uh, yes, for many years, yeah. um, and you had as well, but um, no, we never delivered training. And we actually we actually checked before we departed, would we have to deliver training? They said, no, no, just come and write the curriculum. Our, our network of agronomists will deliver the training. And when we got there, by the way, you're delivering to an NGO conference in two weeks' time. Uh, pick a topic and, and uh, you're, you're the keynote presenters. So that was pretty daunting. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was the delivery of the actual program. So it was not quite a train-the-trainer program. There was aspects of that. Mm. But mm. there was, within, especially within the smallholder um, program, so you would we would train the um, beneficiaries. And then they had a requirement as well to go and then 
tell three other families mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how they could grow. So it was exponential in its growth. So it didn't just reach those individuals that came along to the training. But again, that was not necessarily in the brief to begin with. So it wasn't just the development. It was learning how to deliver and how to create a session and all of those things. Our training program reached 780 participants. So it it was large scale. It was a national program. So um, you really, if you had the time, you'd be daunted by it having never delivered, you know, adult education before. But we just didn't have the time, which probably worked to our benefit because our schedule was so heavy. So the participants that we looked at, so again, so Kate's role, um, the program was divided in such a way where Kate's role, you, you were looking after the two prison systems. Yeah, and the blind side, more the community type gardens. Yeah. 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 And then I travelled um, up to Saling and supported that a little bit, but also out west to Harahoran, which is the ancient city, capital city of, of Mongolia uh, in Chinggis Khan's era. And then down to, I travelled a lot down down to the south uh, through the Gobi Desert and the Chinese border. So we really did travel um, mm. extensively throughout the nation. And when we think travelling, uh, we might think that it's relatively straightforward, but this is an era where there were very little roads, um, the the vehicles were rushing jeeps, um, so everything was pretty difficult and pretty challenging everywhere you turned. Yeah, but it was fantastic. So uh, when you're talking the the small holding groups that we worked with, we worked with very very poor people. Um, they were largely uneducated, with certainly no agricultural knowledge whatsoever. Um, but they were hand selected by our local agronomists who worked closely with the local governors and the local government representatives to select the most needy in the communities. And that was a pretty hard thing to to select because a lot of people were in need. I ended up with a 50-50 mix between women and men and certainly the elderly and the young were represented throughout uh, all the cohorts. Um, so collectively we began to train both them and also about 35 agronomists that were spread out across our our network of, of programs because those agronomists it's actually really well designed which has sort of been designed before we arrived at the blueprint of the program um, and those agronomists were used to uh, support our training endeavors so we would come in we deliver training and then basically as a transfer of knowledge we'd have local agronomists within those communities that would then work with those individuals over the month and ensure that what we were training was being implemented out in the field. So it worked really, really well in most instances. Yeah. The the program was highly structured in that, you know, this month we're looking at this, we want you to go away and focus on this, you know, plant your seeds, they're going to be indoors. You know, it was very structured, next month you'll do this. So they just got small bites of training at a time where they went and then implemented that. Yes, yes. Well, uh, so our first session, well, we'll talk about the structure perhaps in detail in, in a moment, but our, our first session was in a town called Nullock, I mm-hmm. think, originally, which was about about oh, an hour's drive from, from the capital. Yeah. Um, and we, we jumped in the four drive and, and they took us out there. And uh, halfway out... The, the highway was completely snowed in, but they just kept ploughing along because 60 people were waiting for us at the other end. Um, 
and it, we ended up getting bogged and they we, we were getting dug out and I distinctly remember this I'm not sure if you remember but I distinctly remember uh, we'd got bogged and the the cars running and we just covered just white as far as you can see which is dazzling to an Australian and there was shovel, there was a shovel in the back so I get out and start digging digging our way out and our driver who was our program manager he was um, in the in the vehicle ready to drive and we eventually dig our way out of this snow drift and away we go and get driving again and the two local agronomists turned to us and they said well we were fortunate there and we're still all you can see is snow drift as far as you can see you can hardly see the town ahead and they said we were really fortunate there because on this same road last week four people died from being frozen in their cars (laughs) (laughs) and I just thought we were just digging ourselves out of a a four-wheel drive challenge I had no idea as to how serious <laughs> it was before us. So we arrive at, at Nalek, didn't we? And uh, they did say expect that when you get to the first trainings in particular, because you're from Australia, um, people will, will hear about it and think it's quite exotic. So they'll come to just see you and listen to you talk. So expect big crowds. And sure enough, you know, the, the town halls were pretty much full. Um, so it was really quite an interesting experience. Mm. I think that was um, one of the challenges as well is because we were foreign, we, you know, neither of us spoke the language, so everything as well was through an interpreter. Mm -hmm. So that added to the complexity of developing the training and the delivery of the training. Yes, it certainly did, yes. Um, so, So basically our training sessions, at least in, in the small holding delivery, would work along the lines of we would come in with the, with the assistance of the interpreter who was also a trained agronomist uh, who was employed as, as our... So we had individual interpreters that worked very closely with us and a lot of professional trust was, was built into those relationships and it was you know fundamental that the success was, was, was a team approach. I would create the curriculum, or you would create the curriculum at times, we would deliver the curriculum um, in a in a uh, lecture sort of scenario. We'd answer a series of questions as they would as they would arise. Um, they would often just sit the participants and write enormous amounts, screeds of information, and they wouldn't interrupt until it was finished. And then you'd ask for questions, and then here would come the questions. And that was their Russian education approach. Yeah. That's the way it was. So that was fine. That's something we had to adjust to. Um, and then we would then demonstrate how to do a specific technique or, or a series of, of tasks that needed to be undertaken. We would often go to uh, the participants' gardens. Yeah. And so we'd, we'd take the training out into the field and we'd undertake practical training out in the field and, and basically, you know, on-site assessment and provide yeah. feedback to the participants. We'd answer any questions that they would have, so they'd have all different questions depending upon their local gardens. Um, so we we tailor-make the second half of the day to meet the needs of individuals. And uh, you're right, then we would provide them with tasks over the next month. This is what needs to be achieved in order to move forward into yeah. the following month. And to their credit, I would I would think probably ninety percent were really yeah. committed to the process. And 
I was, I mean, looking back, I'm really um, thrilled by the trust that they put in it, in put in us, the beneficiaries. You know, we were teaching them to grow things that they had never heard of, mm. never mm. seen, they mm. had no concept of. Or how to use the products. That's right. Yep. And yet, you know, step by step, mm. you know, the trust that they were willing to trust in the process which is often a hard thing to get across to students, the big picture of where they're going. Um, but they're willing to take the little steps in order to see the big picture well, at that's, the end. Well, that's right. Like in, 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 our, in our training of, of vocational education and training, we are trained to, to, in advance, determine the needs of the student and tailor the training as much as possible to meet those needs of those students. Mm. Uh, but in actual fact, they had to put complete trust in us yeah. and commit to the journey and yeah. trust that it was going to be successful yeah. over time. And, of course, it was, but uh, it was basically the reverse yeah. of how, how we would approach normal vocational education and training within, within a Western yeah. nation or, or similar. Yeah. Um, so we developed uh, the curriculum. So we would write the curriculum over about... Uh, so, so in conjunction with the local agronomists and uh, some senior staff, we uh, timetabled out the training sessions over the year. So we at least had that in advance locked away. And um, I think that was the, that's probably one of the most important things in that program because of the sh- such a short time frame that you had yeah. for them to learn, grow, produce and harvest. Yeah. So the timetabling was really important. It was, it was. And so that collective, like we said before, that collective approach was vital. And then we would write the first month's curriculum over about three days. This is the cycle. This is how it unfolded. We'd write the curriculum for three days while we're in the capital city. We'd hand it to our local agronomists. They would translate it into Mongolian. So they would type madly into Mongolian we would then print on the Friday. We'd get on the train, often on a Sunday, and away we'd go. We'd travel down to the Gobi Desert, and that's that's like an overnight trip. We'd arrive on Monday, and we'd start teaching. Yeah. And so that's how it worked. For one week a month, we were based in the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, which is where we lived. But for the other three weeks of the month, we were constantly traveling, teaching. Mm-hmm. Um so it was a it was a remarkable schedule to maintain for a year, but uh, thankfully we were blessed and it was successful. Mm. So some of the topics we developed included things like uh, plant propagation techniques, the planning of organic garden cycles, the processes involved, irrigation and organic soil and composting mulching those those issues, pest control, which is a, a really important thing which they they'd always relied upon dramatic chemical treatments but of course this program was sponsored by the canadian government and the australian government and it had to be organic yeah so we had to develop organic uh, control techniques which we did over time we ended up developing a uh, um, a pest control manual yeah. with alternative sprays and alike and they were pretty successful out in the field what else we also had things like seed saving techniques harvesting um, importantly, as you were intimating it before, the uh, demonstration of, of cooking and how to process the produce and nutrition. Yeah, because, it, you know, traditionally there was cabbage, there was carrot, 
maybe some onion, but rare, mm-hmm. and potato. And that was the extent of what they had experienced in way of vegetables. So yeah. we were growing a whole wide range, you know, capsicums, um, corn, silver beet, lots and lots of varieties that they had never, and no concept of, they'd never seen, never had exposure to. Mm. So, mm. you know, it was it was a real steep learning curve for the beneficiaries yeah. as well. Yeah. And I remember because uh, they're, they're very much entrenched upon... Um, a diet of of uh, mutton and sheep. Um, so when they were first eating it, uh, the produce I was watching with interest, and their faces were, you know, actually to begin with they were quite concerned about <laughs> eating the produce. But over time, they actually you could see them, you know, talking their own Mongolian dialect, and uh, they just you could see them really enjoying the session, the training yeah. session as they were eating their produce and understanding that this is how, this is what you do with all this produce we've actually grown yeah. um, and how we can uh, use it for, to feed our families. Yeah. Also, we delivered seed saving techniques and micro enterprise, uh, so how to commercialise your products and then the planning for next year uh, to ensure that it was sustainable. So the whole process was cyclic to ensure it was sustainable for the years to come not just one growing season. So it was quite comprehensive. I remember attending right at the beginning, we we spoke about having to deliver at a large NGO conference. And I think there was about 40 different representatives from different NGOs, but there's probably about 60 or 70 people in the room. Uh, And it was quite interesting to watch the training. It was, it was so, it was the, the sort of the Russian perspective on, on how to grow fruiting crops. And it was things like, remember they were talking about on the 29th of May or on the 20th of May, you will apply nine litres of water. Mm. Remember that? And I was yeah. just sort of jaw-dropping because, it, you know, from our perspective, that's certainly not how you would deliver yeah. adult education training. We'd be more focused upon problem-solving. Yes. It um, doesn't really matter what we're delivering. That's how we would, you know, th- those uh, employability skills are yeah. very important and problem-solving is very important. And no doubt that was a challenge for the beneficiaries as well to receive training in a manner that they had not before. Yes. So we were much yes. more about problem solving, you know, look at your plants, test, look at your soil, yeah. dig down, is it damp? If it's damp, you don't need to water, mm. rather than put on two litres every three days or, you know, and mm. they were much mm. more looking for that type of mm. guidance in the beginning. Yeah. So it was really quite interesting, I think, uh, just getting that exposure about yeah. how other parts of the world deliver training, which is fine, but it's a, a totally different approach to yeah. what we were used to. I remember on conclusion of delivering that training event to that NGO conference, that went for probably about three hours because, uh, again, we, I also took them out in the field and demonstrated some of the techniques that I'd been speaking about from a theory perspective. And I remember sitting down afterwards and just taking a big uh, breath thinking, wow, that was successful. This might be all right. We might be okay here. <laughs> Let's hope so, because we had hundreds waiting for us. <laughs> and away we went, and the training commenced. So what do you think, in, within your introduction to education and being an educator, what were the main things you learnt out of the Mongolian food security experience? Well, I suppose on reflection, you know, not so much at the time, but mm. I reflect back and I think there were no session plans. There was no thought of a session plan. It was, 
I knew that I knew the content backwards technically, so I knew what they needed to know. I knew when I was writing the curriculum, I wrote from you know industry experience, subject matter expert, but I I didn't write it from the perspective of perhaps the best way to interpret from a from a student perspective, you know, the way you would review yeah. it today and, and perhaps less text and more photos and things like that. They are on reflection. That's what yeah. I would change. Um, but there's some of the things that I certainly learnt by the end of it. Um, I certainly learnt time management. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we had to be really um, right across everything that was going on. Basically lived it, um, whether we were working or not to ensure that it was going to be successful because it was such a tight time scale. So mm. planning and project management skills, which I'd had previously through the government, um, but they became pretty paramount to what we were doing. Um, I think the the ability, and, and, and I think because it was a second language, it did give us that ability to step back in the middle of training events. So... You know, we would relay what needed to be said next and then the agronomist would then proceed to explain to the group in Mongolian, you know, what what was happening and what was being said. And it gave me time to stand and observe body language Mm -hmm. and observe um, the cohort and whether things were being received well. Because you can pick up a lot from body language or whether I needed to go and revisit some components. So that probably assisted me in in classroom management skills into the future yeah what about yourself i think also on reflection you know Mm. that big picture Mm. thing you know being able to share that with learners up front of this is where you're going to Mm. in the end Mm. they still might get grasp the whole thing but to make that really clear because i think for that for the cohorts we were working with they probably missed that but there was actually no way we could have given that end picture no because it was happening as yeah as as, uh, as it was unfolding yeah. and you know there was nothing to show them there was no no photos there was nothing we could actually no. demonstrate what it would look like in the end but i think in reflection with the next cohorts going through they probably got that bigger picture and that mm. would have helped mm. with you know, most you know most of them completed it. Most of them stayed to the end, so it they wasn't did. so much about losing people. But I think it just would have helped them f- maintain, not even maintain the focus, but it just would have assisted with where they were the going. Yeah. Um. So I think ensuring that learners know where they're headed is really important. Yep. For me. Yeah. Um. And again, that. You know, you have to adapt. You know, we worked with some very different cohorts Mm. um, and your language and how you explain things and the simplicity. You know, often we go too high as well, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, aiming at the barest minimum, really, what they need to succeed. And I think with that program, it was very much that. It was like, you've got to be able, you need to do this this month. And there wasn't all the fluff and pretty Mm. stuff you know, that often we give out in training events, which is nice. But I think pairing things back is is often really important, especially at the beginning of training as well. So keeping things quite a lot simpler with the really what you absolutely need to know. I think that's really important, isn't it? That simplistic approach to training is actually really important. I think you raise a really a really good point there. Um 
in that we didn't have we, we did as much action-based learning as we could in the classroom in that we made our own posters and we I remember I remember our agronomist and yourself colouring in pyramid charts, you know, food pyramid charts and the like, um, and bringing them in. They were fantastic in, in retrospect. But that was, you know, we didn't have technology. Um, we didn't have photographic evidence of previous years and this is what they did here and this is what you need to achieve. It was very much about just trust us, come with us on this journey and you'll be successful because we'll teach you everything you need to know, but it'll be step by step. Um, and it was streamlined. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't basic. It was. It was quite involved when you when you reconsider mm. the whole year in reflection, um, and when you look at the huge harvest these people produced, it revolutionised their communities. But it wasn't presented in such a way that you know was distracting with with facts and figures and the like. It was very much about this is what we're doing yeah. over the next three weeks. And when we're back next week, although you know, in the fourth week, we'll then continue on and we'll review and we'll assist you further. I think some of the trust as well came from that, you know, you they were provided with not only the training, but here are your seeds. Here's your, you know, plastic to make a greenhouse. This is how you make a greenhouse. You know, people would come back a month later and there would be a six-foot deep hole dug in the ground you know 10 foot long six foot wide with plastic over the top not my imagination of what they were going to build as a greenhouse Mm. but it was fantastic and the effort put in serious it was huge you know i was just astounded by you know the the amount of effort and commitment they had to learning given given the ground was still in in permafrost in many ways uh, still still thawing um, and yet they dug, you know, these huge pits um, mm. to create their greenhouses, and uh, or they'd grown their plants inside their tents, which are gears, you know, those circular, yeah. large tents, which they all lived in, um, and they grew them against the potbelly stove to create heat, and they take them outside in the sunshine, but it was freezing cold. They take them out for about half an hour at a time during the day, take them back in, treat them like babies yeah. to get the seedlings up. Yeah. In readiness for the next month, remarkable. Yeah, remarkable. And I, I think also, it's probably been the pivotal moment in my life, probably our lives, of how much impact education can have on someone, and on their lives, and how much it can change their lives. You know, when we look at the outcomes of that training program. Um, and how people are then able to feed themselves the year ahead or create small business, you know, in essence, that was the education that that resulted in that. Enormous power in education. Yeah. Enormous power. That's what I walked away with is, is we take it for granted, but there is enormous power in education. If, uh, if, the, if the cohort wants to fully grasp it and wants to fully commit, and also the realisation of, of what we're doing as educators is so important. So we should take it seriously mm. um, because we have the opportunity to revolutionise people's lives. And, and the stories of what gets achieved are rarely fully um, fed back to us mm. from, from an education perspective, uh, from a practitioner's perspective. But no doubt there's some significant outcomes, positive outcomes right across everything that we do. We just don't have the privilege to see it like mm. we saw it in Mongolia. Yeah. And that's with every adult educator mm. out there. doesn't matter what vocational area you're speaking about or, or teaching in. 
um, there's enormous power and, and I guess enormous responsibility to ensure that what we're delivering is comprehensive to ensure the people's success into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I did walk away with that and that, and you're right, that stayed with me all of my career. Um, it's, it's extremely important. So we delivered action-based learning. So we would lecture, we'd deliver handouts to the participants. We undertake practical training out in the field. Every, every time we, we met with each cohort, we would allocate time for uh, question and answer periods so that individuals could get their, their um, needs met. And importantly, as you said, I think one of the key things was we gave them the materials up front. So all the practical materials, as it unfolded, they they received everything they needed. And that meant us often carrying it in backpacks and, and uh, in our arms and in every possible way. Uh, we carry an enormous amount of equipment down to the Gobi Desert or out to the west, um, out to Slang in the north, to Russia. Um, and so people... Although they didn't know the journey, as you referred to previously, they received these materials and so they knew they were in for something really positive and productive because they were receiving um, um, resources that they never could have afforded by by their own means. So so with that in mind, um, I think they were reassured that we were committing to the year ahead just like they were. Um, the use of the use of local agronomists too um, out in the field, I think that's a really important component with with vocational education training. So basically, really, what that was was linking to the industry. Yeah. So we need to link our training to the industry. So we need to ensure that students have exposure to the industry, so that it relates and so that it transfers to even just their their psychological understanding of why they're studying what they're studying. Mm. Um, and I think that that runs across the board as well. You know, you, you teach within the um, nursing field and you, you have students out on placement all the time, don't you? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's a requirement for their qualification to actually undertake vocational placement. Mm. As it is with most, yeah. I would think. If the participants were absent for some reason, then the agronomist would go and follow them up. So it's a great mechanism for pastoral care. Um, and so the next month, sure enough, those people would be back in the classroom and participating. And often there were dire situations going on at home as to why they weren't there. Yeah. So um, the use of you know that, that one-on-one interest in our students was really important yeah. as well, and that ensured the success of the program. So... If you ever think, oh, well, pastoral care is not that important and that's one thing I can let go and, you know, it's up to them to be in the classroom, I don't care, give that a second thought because it's pretty important. And I realise time's of the essence with all of our training events nowadays, but try and look at another way to save a bit of time um, and ensure your students' welfare throughout the training program. I think another really important strategy that was in the program that helped make the training stick was the beneficiaries then had to go and train others. Mm-hmm. And there's yep. really nothing like teaching someone else yeah, to true. consolidate true. the training mm-hmm. and the knowledge and skills. So I think that is a really important thing that can be taken away as well and you can use in the classroom. You know, you teach and then they perhaps 
share with someone else in the class and reteach it so they actually demonstrate and reteach what they know and that's a great way of embedding that skill in your classroom yeah yeah really important that peer-to-peer contact which is in essence exactly what was going on that's right that's right so what were some of the outcomes some of the outcomes were significantly large um, harvest festivals where the whole towns would stop and this was completely unexpected. This was organised within ta- with the towns themselves, within the communities themselves. So quite large towns would would organise uh, the government, the local government, to host um, harvest festivals. And we would train and then, by the way, you're not going home yet, you need to come out with us tonight because, um, you know, the whole town's waiting for you. <laughs> so we'd go and there would be... Examples of watermelons and, and big, big watermelons and uh, all sorts of produce all around the room. And then there'd be speeches and there'd be uh, respect ceremonies held and we'd be given silk scarves and alike out of appreciation. And it was it was astounding, the uh, the stories that were then shared about how hard it was the year before. I think, the, I think there's two that stand out for me. One of them was a family who, from their excess produce, sold that off, um, made a little bit of money and were able to buy a small soft drink making business. So mm-hmm. they actually mm-hmm. then were able to sustain their income mm-hmm. into the future. Yep. So to me, that that was, you know, that's a great example. The food is a great, is a great benefit and was a benefit to everyone. Yep. Um, but on top of that, there were some who managed to then incorporate micro-enterprise or create another business out of their excess income from their produce. Yeah. I guess the other really standout, heart-wrenching, heartstring-pulling example or story that we got told was, you know, a family. I think they had eight children. And the previous year, they'd lost two through starvation. Mm because they hadn't been able to feed them. And mm. this year they knew that they are actually going to be able to get through the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were a number of those stories. That's yeah. what we recall. But there were a number of those stories like that, like significant hardship, which which is really interesting in that we never knew. And though our local agronomists knew about you know a lot of those stories um, up front, and we were never informed about them until at these harvest festivals, people, the individuals would come up and then relay how grateful they were and how blessed they felt to be a part of the program that we had delivered. Uh, and then they'd relay their life stories to us. And that's when... I'd been working with these people all year and I never realised just how dramatic the power of vocational education could be. Um and uh, it really did make, make me take a step back. Um, but, you know, we left people with, with root cellars, and root cellars, for those that don't understand, uh, 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 you know, hand dug often, uh, holes in the ground, all lined with timber and with wood and, uh, and roofs on the top, and often, you know, six or seven foot deep and, you know, ten foot square. And we left them full of potatoes and, and produce for the for the winter ahead. And so they would use those for storage um, of their produce for the year ahead. And it was fantastic. You know, we, we left people in, in a really good position and uh, and uh, in a much better position, um, often financially, but also, I think, psychologically than the year before. Mm-hmm. And we've had, we've had 
the great honour of returning some years later um, to Mongolia in a different NGO role. And we saw with our own eyes uh, the National Food Security Network right across the whole nation. And it's quite commonplace now to see microenterprise buying and selling and producing their own food. And that original NGO program that we helped to establish is still going today, mm. all those years later. So it demonstrates that if, uh, if you plan your vocational education training program concisely, if you use your resources wisely, um, then it can have a dramatic impact that can be sustained for you know, years to come, mm. many years to come. So with regards to monitoring and evaluation, we were also involved with writing reports for our donor agencies, uh, so the Canadian government and the Australian government. What sort of uh, processes do you recall in relation to that? We wrote a midterm and an end of project report. Yeah. I think there was also a... Um, we also did a monthly, monthly report on what had taken place, what training had occurred, mm-hmm. how many people had attended, what um, provisions and equipment had been yes. distributed, right. um, those type of things. So it it built on each other. On each month, you would create your monthly report. The monthly reports would be incorporated into the sixth monthly or the midterm report. Yeah. And then all of the reports were in the final. Yeah, yeah. So we did uh, on-site assessments yes. in the midterm report and also at the um, end of year, uh, end of project report. We evaluated and assessed the weights and measurements of produce, so mm-hmm. how much produce was produced. We recorded the family members that were trained and those additional people that were trained by the beneficiaries, yeah. so that train the trainer sort of approach. We undertook interviews with, uh, to, d- to determine the knowledge retention um, with the with the uh, participants, and also we interviewed the local government, so the local governors, with regards to their perspective of the how it's changed the the um, community yeah. opportunities, and then we we wrote those reports. Um, I think I recall out at Harahoran, which is right out in the west of the country. I I do recall another one of those stories, and that is we were interviewed. We were doing this this final evaluation report and gathering data and we interviewed this old lady and she said you know 15 years ago or 20 years ago Russians came through and they had an orange in their hand and they sat and they dissected the orange in front of them and they ate it casually while they were talking about whatever it was and she said to herself all I wanted to be able to do is buy an orange for my family one day before I die that's all I want to do and she said, and with, with the produce and with the sales, I've been able to buy an orange. I cut it up. We shared it as a family, one segment each, and now I'm ready to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, what a wonderful story. And I remember, well, I think we put that in the report, actually. Wow. Uh, what a wonderful story uh, of how education can benefit whole families. Yeah. Make dreams come true. Mm, mm. So... What's the takeaway message, do you think? I think for me it's very personal in that, you know, education is, it really is one of the 
basic needs of people to be able to provide for themselves. Yep. You know, we need health, we need education, we need food, um, you know, shelter. But education actually enables people to do those things. Mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's so important that people have access to um, whether it's vocational education or basic education, but it makes a huge difference to people's lives and the outcomes of their lives and ability to provide for themselves. Um, I guess on a education note, which we've already discussed, is, you know, look at the big picture. Make sure people understand the big picture. Mm. Um, mm. And you do need to adapt to your cohorts. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. The the importance of education, and and you know, we t- often talk about primary education as being essential, but I think vocational education is is just as important because, yeah. you know, what we experienced was whether you're prisoners, whether you're uh, uh, in the women's prison, or whether you're in the juvenile prison, young young uh, teenage boys locked up in prison for petty crime, or whether you're of a disability, or just the ultra poor, and there's just so many and too many. Um, everyone deserves the opportunity to access vocational education training. doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you'd like to learn more about this success story in vocational education, simply visit www.transformationconsultancy.com and look at our page, Success Stories.